We all have dreams. Some people seem to live theirs while others seem to struggle. This is, however, merely a perception. What if you could get the answers you needed to execute on your dreams? Welcome to the Platinum Mask Podcast, a show designed to ask various young professionals just how they deal with their specific ups and downs. How does one young upstart navigate competing with name brand companies? Where do we get the best tools? How do we grow from our stress and anxiety? Most importantly, how do we properly utilize our cash flow? The Platinum Mask Podcast with your host, Grayson Mask. We wanted answers, so we're going out to get them and sharing them with you. Let's get right into today's episode. Hello to everyone listening to That Platinum Mask Podcast. I am Grayson Mask. I have with me Tim, the founder of Sourcecraft Cocktails. And really, this is a conversation that, um, you know, I'm wanting to have more wine and spirits focused conversations. And when I reached out, this was kind of a business that I was very interested on, on kind of the, you know, direct to home consumer based products. Um, especially during this COVID-19 pandemic, you know, that's kind of a really a huge opening and opportunity for businesses to kind of meet with new customers. And I'm, you know, very curious on, you know, where that kind of business model is going from here. So thank you again, Tim, for, you know, jumping on this episode with me and having this conversation. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you and your audience today. Definitely. Well, I kind of wanted to first get a sense on, you know, where kind of how you got into the alcohol industry. I kind of saw a little on your background that, um, you know, you worked with a lot of kind of tech startups beforehand and kind of wanted to see, you know, what that transition was like. Yeah, no, it's been a real blessing. My background has always been in uh, technology and the alcohol industry and sourced is Mm -hmm. sort of a merger of my to uh, personal career experiences uh, for the last six years, it has been an amazing ride uh, that has led us to be the largest craft cocktail delivery business in the United States, which is kind of mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So b- before we start, uh, I'm going to ask you um, here in a second to take your consumer hat off and put okay. your Wharton MBA hat on. But before <laughs> we get into the business of the alcohol industry, um, I like to ask, you know, alcohol is a category that's been enjoyed for centuries. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd love to know, what is your favorite spirits brand? Do you like Tito's or Don Julio or Bullet Bourbon? Like, give me, give me, we'll use as a talking point as we talk mm-hmm. about the regulatory environment of this uh, industry. Um, give me what your favorite brand is. Um, I would say I like a lot of products under like the Svedka brands. Okay, cool. So we'll talk about we'll we'll talk from Spetka specifically. So here's now we'll take our consumer hat off uh, and we'll put <laughs> our work MBA hat on. And uh, the vast majority of consumers don't actually know how the alcohol industry works as a business. So here's some background: the industry is a two hundred and fifty-four billion dollar a year U.S. marketplace. So it's a very, very large addressable market. And here's my favorite part. It's literally recession proof. And I will, I will prove that to you. There have been 13 economic declines in this country over the last hundred years. And in every single one of them, the amount of alcohol that was enjoyed in the year of a bad economy actually grows faster than it does in a good economy. 
So we as consumers are quote unquote numbing the pain. And the industry has proved it 13 times. So World War, no problem. Gross. Great recession, no problem. Gross. Okay, let's talk about a pandemic. Mm-hmm. U.S. consumers enjoyed 14% more ounces of alcohol in 2020 than they did mm-hmm. in 2019. So the worst economic year <laughs> of a generation and the alcohol industry grew by double-digit growth. And that's what really makes the industry itself very, very interesting as a business opportunity is that it's this massive $250 plus billion a year addressable market. And it literally, no matter what happens, will never decline. It will actually increase when times are bad. And that's really kind of where my interest in the alcohol industry came from was you have this massive addressable market that never declines, but you have a regulatory environment that has not innovated prior to sourced in 90 years. So it's a very interesting case study. Um, have you ever heard of the three-tiered system of alcohol distribution? Um, yeah, if I'm not mistaken, in Texas, it's where the spirit the distributor can't sell spirits directly to like an on-premise location. Uh, very close. Uh, I'll, I'll walk you. I'll walk you and your audience through it. Um, and what's interesting again: massive addressable market never declines. In fact, if something bad happens, it increases. But yet 99.999% of Americans have no idea how the regulatory environment works. And it's really a history lesson in our country. So you'll have to recall that our country was a Puritan founded society. We literally wanted to be the beacon on the hill, right? So not only did we have a moral compass, we as society thought very highly of our moral compass. And there was a time period in this country's history known as prohibition that for 14 years, we as a society viewed alcohol as sinful and we made it illegal to distill, which is the alcohol industry's word for make Svetka, uh, mm-hmm. to distribute, to sell and to consume. And what happened in 1933 which was when the law was enacted that still governs alcohol distribution today in 2021, uh, is we as a society didn't change our moral compass. What changed was our need for tax revenue. So you think back to 1933, it was literally statistically the worst economic year of this entire country's 250 plus year history. And what had happened with 50 million people on the breadline, meaning no employment and we're having to eat at someone else's generosity, you have 50 million Americans in that position, was that the government's big grand plan, which became known as the New Deal, was for the government itself to become the employer, right? That was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, president of the Times, big plan is that the government was going to directly be the employer for these 50 million people building infrastructure projects, roads, bridges, and tunnels. History would prove that that turned out to be a really, really great idea. There was a problem that a bean counter in the federal government determined in 1932 of like, hey, did you know that if we're going to be the employer, that payroll runs every two weeks, And you actually have to have the cash on hand to fund the payroll. And we have a big problem. The thing the president just said we were going to go do, yeah, we don't have the money for that. 
And they said, okay, well, let's talk about our traditional tax base. How about property tax? The real estate land value in this country was one third its value in 1933 as it had been in 1923. So we're like, whoops, property tax, that's not going to work. Okay, how about sales tax? Well, the reason the 50 million people are on the breadline is that they literally can't afford to go to a grocery store and buy anything. So sales tax, that's not going to work either. No problem. Employer payroll tax. No, no. Remember, we have to be the employer because private industry can't employ anybody because they don't have any revenue because they can't sell anything to anybody. So that's not going to work. So the government's goal in 1933 was, oh, my God, we have to find a product category that we're not taxing today that we can devise a plan to tax as many times as humanly possible. And they went right that sinful alcohol industry. <laughs> and so the government's objective in 1933 was to devise a regulatory distribution system that would tax an individual bottle of alcohol as many times as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. And I can say, and the reason it has innovated in almost 90 years is that they were very effective. So we'll take Svetka <laughs> as our example, mm -hmm. right? The three-tiered system is such. Svetka is known as tier one. They're able legally to distill, make the alcohol, and market it. But they can never sell it directly to me and you as consumers. Because if they did, the government would only have the ability to tax that bottle one time. Not enough tax revenue, right? So what happens is Svetka pays a tax on the actual label. They pay it to a government agency known as the TTB. So for each leader of Svetka Vodka, They've now taxed that leader, that one individual bottle, one time. Mm -hmm. They then can sell it to tier two, a distributor. The distributor is a truck with George Clooney's face on the side of it. Right? <laughs> they pay a tax on that exact same bottle from buying it from the brand. So now one bottle, we've taxed it twice. The distributor can deliver the bottle of alcohol to two out of three kinds of doorknobs in this country. Doorknob number one, you've referred to as an on-premise. That means it's a bar, a restaurant, or a hotel. They can sell you a Svetka and, and soda, but you must drink that bottle on the premises. Doorknob number two, the truck with George Clooney's face on it, can deliver it to what's called off-premise. Right, That's a liquor store, or depending on the state, might be a grocery store. They can sell you the entire bottle of Svetka, but there's literally a red sign on the front door of Total Wine or Specs or Fevmo, ABC Fine Wines or Kroger that says you must consume the alcohol off the premises. So you can buy the bottle, but you can't open it and start drinking it. You have to leave the physical store and be removed from the premises of the building to start enjoying the spirit. Which brings us to what source salts. It's what we call non-premise. It's doorknob number three. Legally, the distributor cannot actually deliver to a doorknob that is not a bar or a liquor store, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's not a way for the bar or liquor store to remit taxes if they don't have an on or off-premise license. So what source built was what we call the non-premise the legal and compliant distribution of alcohol to every door that is not a liquor store or a bar. So give me a guess, because we could talk about, okay, it's a $250 billion a year marketplace. It never declines. 
But if I'm going to be your audience and continue investing your most valuable resource, your time in, in visiting with us today, how many doors are non-premise? So give me a guess by percentage, 100% is the total number of doorknobs that are on-premise, off-premise, and non-premise. So every house, every office complex, every art gallery, every um, retail apparel shop, Kendra Scott, those are all non-premise doors. What percentage of doorknobs in this country are not a bar or a liquor store? Give me a guess. I mean, I would assume definitely a majority, um, maybe 70%. Good guess. Uh, and you're right on the majority part, 98% of doorknobs. Oh, wow. <laughs> doorknobs in this country are not a bar and a liquor store. And what Source did is we opened up 98% of new points of distribution for the $254 billion monster that is the U.S. alcohol industry that never declines. And that is how we became the fastest growing and the largest craft cocktail delivery business in this country is that in a legally compliant manner that still holds true to the 21st Amendment of the United States Constitution, which is what established an informal document, <laughs> is what established the three-tiered system. And to kind of conclude the tax revenue discussion, the reason it hasn't innovated in 90 years is it still works this evening very well for the government. So let's go back to our three-tiered system. One bottle of Spetka, right? The distiller pays a tax. The distributor, tier two, pays a tax for buying it from the distiller. Mm -hmm. The retail account pays a tax for buying it from the distributor. And then you and I, as consumers, when we go to a bar, pay sales tax, right? Anywhere from 7 to 10% on every single vodka soap. In one liter of Spetka vodka, they're the equivalent of 16 vodka sodas, which means the government's plan as enacted in 1933, that still exists this evening, allows it to collect tax revenue 19 times on the same one liter bottle of Spetka vodka, which is why there's no incentive for the three-tier system to ever actually change because it's still working extraordinarily well to grow the tax base for the government to fund other types of initiatives, whether that's schools or roads or bridges or healthcare, et cetera. The alcohol industry is still a great tax base, which is why the government has no motivation to actually change holistically the three-tiered system. Mm -hmm. Like how, how much, uh, I guess, what percentage of the total uh, federal taxes are coming, uh, I guess, related to alcohol? It's a very large number. I often, when people say, oh, you're in the alcohol industry and they'll give me the moral stink eye, I promptly say, hey, how's your kid's school? Pretty good. <laughs> I pay a lot of taxes. Um, it, it's a gigantic number uh, and it's an important number uh, because there are lots of other initiatives that the government needs to have funded, uh, particularly at this time period where things are so challenging. Um, what we did is we looked at the industry and said, okay, that is an immovable fact that is not going to change because it's still so effective and so necessary. But yet when you fast forward 90 years, all of us are probably listening to this podcast on what I refer to as your remote control to life. It is your iPhone or your Android device. And what happened to us as consumers 
is that we got very accustomed, particularly in a pandemic when we got locked inside our own home, in ordering everything that we wanted from our magical device. We ordered our groceries, Amazon. We ordered someone else's car, Uber. We actually could order and secure someone else's home from our magical device, our smartphone, Airbnb. So when you look at what Source built, we basically solved the distribution challenges in a legally compliant way for the 21st century millennial consumer who wants and and literally demands everything to be convenient from their mobile device, but it must be a very well thought out high end experience, right? Because it's their time and it's their money and of equal importance, it's their personal brand that they're building on Instagram. Mm. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it is, right? <laughs> if you want to be a star on TikTok, right? A domestic beer doesn't look cool. Uh, you're going to want a cocktail because that looks cool. And so we basically sat at the intersection of mobile convenience with highly curated experience. And now we mm. deliver tens of millions of cocktails across this country. Definitely. And with the conversation uh, with delivering millions of cocktails to these non-premises, what's the, I guess, the biggest um, demographic of that? Is it straight to people's houses? Is it um, possibly apartment complexes? Is it, um, you know, business locations that are rising during all this? A really great question. I love that question. It really speaks to exactly what Source was built for, which is we have two sides of our business. Um, one we call B2C. So at sourcecraftcocktails.com, we have over 55 different cocktail expressions that you can enjoy and choose from. And we update those on a regional and uh, quarterly basis. So we actually just came out with our spring menu. Um, and so it's very palate friendly as the temperature starts to warm up in, in across the country. Um, mm-hmm. And we deliver those cocktail experiences um, mainly to a millennial female. Right? She's the planner. Uh, she's what we refer to as the chief entertainment officer uh, of, of either her friend group, if she's not married, or her household, if, if she is with a partner. Uh, and um, we're, we served over 900,000 consumers in the top nine cities of this country last year. Mm-hmm. On the other side, we've built an enterprise business where we have 18,000 office managers who we help build culture inside of their companies. So if you think about sort of the interpersonal relationships of a company, right, those generally happen in a social environment to which alcohol has always for centuries played a role. So we have a remote working product we call Source Socials. One same cocktail delivered to all the employees' household non-premise doors, and then everyone gets on Zoom. And we have a cocktail demonstration. We teach you how to make the cocktail. We teach you what's interesting about vodka. We teach you what the different types of vodkas are based on the part of the world that the vodka came from and what's a positive uh, about each different kind. Uh, and then we'll teach you something fun, right? We'll, we'll teach you why is vodka what we refer to as the chicken of the alcohol industry, which allows the employees to A, have fun getting to know one another, uh, and B, it allows them to gain knowledge that looks cool when they post on Instagram. Um, We also have a big in-person business because when you think about some of our largest customers, Google, Apple, Netflix, MetLife, 
Facebook, their office buildings are also non-premise. They're not a bar and they're not a liquor store. So legally, the alcohol has to get to their door properly. Uh, it has to be served with the right licensed staff. Uh, you should have liquor liability to protect that tech company's business. Uh, and mm-hmm. Sourced has built uh, a business line that serves 18,000 office managers in those top nine cities across the country, helping them build culture, right, interpersonal uh, relationships that help people solve business problems better. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And you mentioned uh, with uh, liquor liability, with that being needed for your business, is, is it, um, I guess, the people delivering the cocktails to like a non-premise uh, location, do they need like a, like a TABC certification for uh, this type of business? That's a, that's a great question. So um, in person, yes, anyone serving alcohol needs to have gone through a state generated um, compliance program so that they're able to a make sure legal drinking age uh, 21 plus is adhered to and how to check an ID and how to I think the regulators have done a really fantastic job in the middle of a pandemic of putting out guidance on how to check an ID in a contactless manner meaning not touching the ID which was really great to see the regulatory environment uh, be able to keep the consumer and Staff like are safe. Um, I, I commend them greatly and I'm very appreciative of that. Um, additionally, they have to know how to evaluate someone's sobriety. Uh, right? You you cannot overserve a consumer because you have a legal and a moral obligation to protect their safety when they're having fun with alcohol. So in an in-person environment, yes, you need a licensed staff that has gone mm-hmm. through, whether it's Texas or California or New York, each state has a different program. Um, in the delivery business, we only hire out-of-work bartenders uh, who are licensed by the state to be able to make those two very specific determinations. Um, other uh, delivery businesses that are great, like Drizzly, um, that just got acquired by Uber for $1.1 billion, um, they, they will um, choose not to use the licensed staff in the delivery business. It's not legally required uh, for us. Um, we always do everything, not only right to the law, but right to what I consider to be our moral obligation. Uh, and so we only have licensed individuals who are making those deliveries so that, again, they can check the legal drinking age and make sure that that consumer is of age to be able to accept that cocktail kit delivery and to make sure that we're not handing it to somebody who may have already enjoyed too much alcohol and it's not safe for them to continue to do so. So we sort of take the most conservative approach in the industry on that uh, because not only do we think we have a legal obligation, we think we have a, a, a moral uh, one as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You mentioned um, really working with out-of-work bartenders. I remember seeing on uh you know, the, um, you know, the millions in salaries that you guys were able to pay um, towards people that, you know, were possibly laid off in these on-premise locations. I was kind of wondering on, you know, do you, how, I guess, long lasting do you see these effects on the on-premise locations? Do you think COVID, um, you know, will have a, a lasting effect over the years? Or, you know, do you think they can bounce back after all this? Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a really great question. So, I'll kind of back up. Um, We founded Sourced in 2015, our North Star is to be of service. Uh, If we're of service to the consumer, it's, hey, you're having a Kentucky Derby party. 
you haven't seen your friends in a year, white wine and a plastic cup just doesn't really cut it. You're watching the most exciting two minutes of sports and it's very, very identified with the mint julep. But no one outside of someone who's worked behind a bar knows how to bruise mint, right? Like you talk to somebody about, I want you to bruise and spank the mint. They're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but you, when you think about a mint julep, it only has three components, bourbon, sugar, and mint. So if you can't handle the mint right, you're going to have a very poor tasting experience, which is not okay if you have having five or six families over in your backyard and you haven't seen them in a year. And so we want to elevate that experience and make it convenient. You didn't have to do anything other than order it on your phone and it got delivered the same day you ordered it. Um, and so uh, for us, we're very, very conscious on um, over the last six years, the other group that we wanted to be of service to was the hospitality industry. That is my industry. Those are the people that not only um, are the face of my business and our experience, but those are also my people. Uh, and so over the last six years, um, the way the restaurant industry works today is the, and most consumers don't know this, uh, the starting salary on an hourly basis is $2.13 an hour. And then you get to take home the tip jar, which we viewed that uh, as not only being inappropriate to compensate someone for their time and talents, uh, but we, we viewed it candidly to be offensive. Uh, and so we've always paid anywhere from 20 to $50 an hour for the last six years to these highly trained mixologists based on exactly their level of skill set uh, and what it is that they're educating our audience around. Uh, and so for us, when the pandemic hit, we had $800,000 worth of in-person experiences literally cancel in about a 10-day time period in the end of March of 2020. Literally $8-plus million of business, which represented $800,000 worth of staff pay, vaporized poof, gone. Mm -hmm. And so what we decided was, hey, we're going to take those same people and we're going to invent a way to deliver these cocktail kits in a safe manner for the consumer and them. And we're still going to pay them anywhere from 20 to $50 an hour. And over the course of the entirety of the year, from March 2020 to March 2021, we ended up paying out over $1.5 million of shift labor plus the gratuity plus a transportation reimbursement. Mm -hmm. So if it was one of our team in New York City that was delivering it on a subway, we paid for the subway car. If it was one of our team in Dallas delivering it to Highland Park, we paid for their tank of gas. That way they were really walking away with anywhere from $20 to $50 an hour plus their gratuity. Uh, on average, our mixologists make $4,000 net a month, which is enough to really fund their way of life and allow them to keep a roof over their head. And we were just very, very grateful to have the ability to do that through mm -hmm. our B2C and source social enterprise business. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And it was kind of, um, you know, with these partnerships with Mixologist, I guess, is it uh, similar to um, like ghost kitchens? Uh, do the um, Mixologist make them in certain bars and then deliver them to the non-premise customer? Yeah, very, very good question. Um, so we basically pay bartenders in four different ways. They, they play a very important part to our product 
in uh, kind of four different parts of our experience. Number one, they help us actually come up with the ideas of the 55 cocktails that you see at sourcecraftcocktails.com. And we compensate them for what I consider to be intellectual property. It is their idea. Uh, and we are compensating for their time and talent properly uh, so that A, it's clear that they've been compensated and B, it's clear that we now own the idea of the Blackberry Crush cocktail. Uh, number two, uh, we have a commercial kitchen, a ghost kitchen, if you will, in every one of our nine major U.S. markets, New York, Miami, Houston, Dallas, Austin, Chicago, etc. cetera. Uh, and there is a uh, team of operations managers that are all former bartenders that are full-time employees that make our fresh mixes uh, by hand every single day, all the way up to the standards of local county health department regulation uh, so that they are food handler certified, et cetera, so that we're making it and we're making it safely and we're making it properly. Number three is they get paid uh, 20 to $25 an hour, depending on uh, their market, to actually deliver and drive those cocktail kits. Uh, and then the fourth and final way is that we helped over 2,300 companies in 2020 engage their employees remotely through what we call Source Socials. It's a real happy hour. We delivered the same cocktail kit to all 200 of your employees, but it's virtual. Everybody's at home and they join Zoom. Well, we're paying the mixologist behind the camera and have four studios built into our headquarter building in Austin, Texas, where we're literally on a daily basis running anywhere from eight to 15 different Zooms doing the education. And we pay a highly trained mixologist $50 an hour to actually understand the intricacies of agave or understand the intricacies of bourbon and be able to really educate uh, those corporate uh, employees on what's going on. It's part of my, one of my favorite things about kind of the business over the last year is, you know, we helped educate over a hundred thousand corporate employees about how to enjoy cocktails at home, which is a remarkable feat that would not have been possible. Had we not all as consumers adopted technology like zoom or Google hangouts. Uh, and it was one of those kind of unintended um, outcomes of COVID, there weren't a lot of silver linings for us as consumers, but that was certainly one that we enjoyed. And um, certainly a lot of our enterprise clients did as well. Definitely. And I know I saw um, on part of the, um, on the website, really, I saw that you guys do, I, I guess, private events or private parties, if you want to supply a on-premise uh, mixologist. And do you see, I guess, that part of the business rising as, um, you know, vaccines are up and there's, you know, less social distance is required? Absolutely. It's what we call sourced on location. Uh, so we legally deliver the alcohol to your home or your office. We deliver a physical bar. We deliver Libby glassware, which is like the Rolls Royce glassware. We deliver all the non-alcoholic <laughs> ingredients, the licensed mixologist and the liquor liability insurance. Uh, which is really, really important. I think uh, most people don't know what the DRAM Act is. Um, the short version is um, whomever is serving the alcohol is legally and morally obligated to protect that individual's health, not only to get home, meaning safely to be able to operate a motor vehicle all the way to the house, but to wake up healthy the next morning. Uh, and mm -hmm. so we provide that liquor liability insurance to make sure it's clear that we're 
with the proper trained staff serving the alcohol to evaluate someone's inebriation level and that we're liable and protecting both the business or the consumer. We did our first in-person event here in Austin last Friday uh, mm-hmm. for 700 people. Uh, and it was the first time in 14 and a half months. And it was so fun to see the consumer's reaction. So it was done safely. You either had to have a vaccination card or take a rapid COVID test at the door. Once you were inside because you had been deemed healthy, uh, everyone took the mask off. And to watch 700 people for the first time not only come together, but literally have an absolute ball. I mean, the Uh event was supposed to end at 10. And by 11, we were going, look, you, you have to go home now. Because the consumer has been cooped up for a year plus. They're like, I'm ready to party and I can hang out with my friends and I'm not wearing a mask and I can finally have fun and enjoy um, my company and uh, in terms of enjoy each other. And for us, what we do in the way we're of service is we elevate the experience with alcohol to meet the significance of this um, female entrepreneur networking event and the fact that 700 people hadn't been able to gather in one place in over a year, right? Like white wine in a crappy plastic cup does not cut it, right? That does not say meet the moment of the significance of we're all together and we're helping one another as female entrepreneurs and we haven't been able to get together in a year, that white wine isn't going to cut it. And so we elevated with French 75 with a proper flute and really had a ball. And yes, um, we see that side of our business growing very, very rapidly based on what we can see consumer and enterprise businesses looking to do over the next six months. Definitely. And with interacting with these kind of customers in person, is there any, I guess, uh, consumer preferences that you've been noticing during all this or any changes in what customers like? I know um, kind of a conversation I have with someone um, you know, they're talking about definitely the rise in seltzers during all this with kind of uh, with on-premise locations locked and kind of more outdoor events were kind of the um, prime example. They said, you know, people sometimes uh, like a, a seltzer in some of these situations. Have you noticed anything specifically in your business? Absolutely. It's a great question. You're sort of touching on the last value proposition of Source, uh, which is because of the three-tiered system, Right. The brands never have any idea who actually drinks and enjoys their alcohol from a data perspective. And I know that's mind blowing right? for, for your audience out there that might work in another CPG category. Right. They they work at Procter and Gamble and laundry detergent. You can go, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. We've got a two hundred fifty billion dollar marketplace and no one knows who the actual consumer is. That is correct mm-hmm. because. The bottle of Svetka goes from Svetka to the distributor, to the retailer, to the consumer. And so the brand, tier one, never has any idea who's actually consuming their alcohol. And so Source built a a very robust data analytics business uh, where we've got 900,000 people on a digital platform, everything from shopping online to converting to repeating. And then in person, we actually built our own software that will measure anonymously the demographics of who enjoys each cocktail. Mm-hmm. So what gender did we hand the Svetka cocktail to? Was it a man or a woman? Um, what was the ethnicity? What was the age and 10-year breaks? What was the flavor profile? What was the style of cocktail? And we're able to actually provide back data. If you wanted to look at, say, um, African-American women between the age of 25 to 35 and what they 
enjoyed in Chicago versus Miami, we would be able to tell you exactly what they enjoyed and what you're touching on in, in what the alcohol industry refers to as the RTD, ready to drink category, seltzer, mm-hmm. uh, is really this idea of mobile convenience, right? People want a great taste with low calories and they want it uh, to be convenient. Um, for Source, what makes us unique is we solve all the mobile convenience but still do so with a fresh cocktail. Because at the end of the day, anything that you put into a can or a bottle that has to make it shelf stable will strip some of the taste profile out of it by nature of chemistry. Uh, And that's where it's like, look, you shouldn't have to settle. Uh, You shouldn't settle for a subpar experience just because it's convenient. And that's really what we're built uh, to sort of sit at and be of service around for the consumers, this intersection of mobile convenience as highly curated experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I see um, on the website with uh, kind of the convenience of having all those ingredients um, kind of mixed together and then sent to um, the consumer's household. I was kind of wondering, you know, if I order something right now, I saw, you know, some of the packages where you can order, I guess, a tap and then kind of refill it as you want to go. So is that like, um, you know, do you pay for a refill or is it uh, kind of a monthly subscription base or how does that business go? Absolutely. Great question. Um, We have three different product lines. Uh, The first is called Today's Menu. Uh, It's just like a cocktail menu at a bar or restaurant. So we've curated 15 cocktails. They're specific regionally and based on seasonality. Uh, And what's delivered is a sealed bottle of alcohol and the mixer. All the components already put together. So we also deliver the bar tool, which is a bartender's measuring cup called a jigger. And we teach you the proper proportions of the spirit to the mixer. The second group is what we call build your own kit. It's really shopping by brand. So if you have a favorite brand, Svetka, we offer you three different cocktail expressions based on your preference of brand. And then the third, which you referenced, is our sourced on tap. So what we found was there was a subset of folks that wanted maximize convenience. They didn't want to have to mix anything. Uh, and so we invented the world's first fresh draft cocktail machine where we get to your home like it's tableside guacamole service, right? Or a tableside lobster. And we actually make inside of our draft cocktail machines, all of the cocktail, hand it over to you. You enjoy it. When it's done, we literally bring you the refill. And it's incredible at the cost efficiency for the consumer. So the cost per cocktail on the refills for our sourced on tap uh, product is anywhere from 3 to $5 per cocktail. So it's like one-fourth of the cost of going out. Uh, and it's this really high-end, freshly prepared, fresh-squeezed lime juice, a homemade agave nectar, uh, and a great premium tequila with something like Patron. Uh, and so at that level of quality and that pricing inefficiency, you literally can't have a better experience for any uh, more uh, price efficiency. Mm-hmm. All the consumer has to do is pull the tap handle. <laughs> No, definitely. I really, yeah, I definitely need to check out on some of the packages offered on the website. I saw some of the packages, but um, definitely need to order something eventually. Um, Some of those, yeah, kind of the actual uh, pulling the tap, I thought is such a unique idea and want to actually try the product. But um, really wanted to um, uh, 
get into your uh, program you're launching with chief doing officers as well. And I kind of wanted to uh, see if you wanted to kind of expand on that and then some of and, and some of the collaborations you're doing through that with, you know, who are some of the uh, partnerships you have with. Absolutely. Thanks for asking. This total passion project for me. Um, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, uh, like I'm sure many in your audience. This is my fifth company. Uh, and what I've noticed over the last 10 or 15 years uh, is I've noticed that we as entrepreneurs have to literally do. If you don't get out there and actually want to do and physically do, it will not happen. Right? As an entrepreneur, there aren't armies of people where you decide something and then other people do. You have to actually get off your own, you know what, and go make it happen. But the mm-hmm. problem is scalability. Right? The problem is, is that you have to get on Google.com, search for how do I run a digital marketing campaign, figure out by learning, which means failing a whole bunch of times, and then finally get to the right answer. And then the next thing you want to do, I want a CRM system. Do I want Salesforce or HubSpot? You go back and repeat the same process, which is you go to google.com, you search it up, you then spend three hours reading the reviews. But yet each of us entrepreneurs, we know how to do that, right? And so what doing officer is about is is about crowdsourcing the actual practical application of the doing. And so what I'm fortunate to be able to do, uh, just by nature of A, being in Austin, Texas, uh, where we in the tech entrepreneur scene have exploded in the best possible way, as well as B, having been around the block a whole bunch of times uh, with a few successful outcomes in earlier businesses, I just have sort of a personal mentor and mentee group that has been very successful and has done many, many things. So Chief Doing Officer is an Instagram account that's going to launch in late May, where I'll actually be interviewing other CDOs, other people that I respect that have gotten out and have done the work to be and learn how to be successful. And we're literally crowdsourcing solutions. Mm -hmm. So every single episode starts with how do you fill in the blank? How do you run a digital marketing campaign? How do you target in LinkedIn? How do you build an ERP? How do you create a last one mile logistics? How do you work with Shopify? It's very, very (laughs) practical application that is acknowledged in each of the posts so that the audience can decide if the the lesson of successful doing is a good use of time or not. Because at the end of the day, as an entrepreneur, that's really what I've discovered is that time is our most valuable resource. Mm -hmm. Think about it this way. If I Venmoed you $100 and I said, let's spend the last couple of minutes sharing with your audience where you can go buy 60 more minutes, we would start at Amazon and then we would find it's unavailable. And we go, well, wow, that's weird. Maybe it's just not a digital thing. Let's go down the street to Walmart, the super center. It's got to be there. And we ask the greeter at the front door, I have a $100 bill that I know you Walmart want to take. What aisle is 60 more minutes on? And they would go, there is no aisle. Because the reality is time is the only thing you can never procure more of. And the part that's really scary that I think the pandemic really reinforced for all of us in in a very sad way is that we don't control how many minutes we have left. Mm -hmm. And so if those two things are true, you can never buy more of and you don't know how many you have left, then I would argue time really, truly is your most valuable resource, not money. 
And what CDO is really built to do, it's really built to crowdsource from other chief doing officers, right? Other people at any level of a company who actually get off their you-know-what and go get shit done. It's really helping one another by sharing how they accomplish the doing so that you can go faster in your own growth and be more efficient with your most valuable resource, your time. Mm-hmm. That's so you'll be able to follow us starting late May at Chief Doing Officer uh, on Instagram. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I know you kind of mentioned um, earlier with, uh, you know, with the huge expansion of Austin, especially with COVID-19, it seems like, you know, I think Austin's the number one city in the United States that's, you know, going to have the largest, um, you know, track record of new um, citizens. I was kind of wondering if, you know, if there's been any new um, entrepreneur or specific business or creative that's officially moving out to Austin that, you know, you're very excited about, um, you know, now or moving forward? Yeah, great question. Um, Austin, boy, we're having our moment um, and we're very blessed and grateful for it. Um, if you're out there in the audience, uh, Austin, Texas is one of the greatest places in the world. I am a hard carrying nerd, full keep it weird believer. So uh, bias is disclosed. Uh, and y'all should come down and check us out. Um, here's what, and, and it's one of the things that we were really, you know, just candidly lucky in some of the big picture assumptions we made in 2015 about sourced, right? Mm-hmm. We thought people were going to continue to migrate to shop on their phone. We thought that um, people, that craft cocktails would continue to take share from the beer and wine industry. Um we thought that people building their own brands and Instagram would be something that they would want to elevate the experience and it would become an experience economy, not an economy based on material things. And then the last piece that we really made a big bet on was that we made a big bet on Austin. Um, I, you know, I, I made a bet to leave California uh, and build this company headquartered in Austin because we felt like the talent of the people that we were going to need to grow the company on the technology side with our own custom built ERP to handle the logistics, right? You, you can imagine with 900,000 consumers and 18,000 enterprise accounts and having to actually own your last one mile as a very complicated supply chain uh, and logistics <laughs> operation. And we needed talented developers that were going to be able to build and continue to iterate the feature set of our own ERP. Uh, and so we made a bet on Austin because we looked at kind of the big macroeconomics and said, look, people are going to want to leave California and they're going to want to live and work in Austin. And as a result, didn't hurt that the business taxes were ridiculously more friendly. That was an upside <laughs> according to our accounting department. Um, but we made that bet. And when you look back uh, kind of six years later, we were just unbelievably lucky that all four of those things turned out um, at, at least to the majority of the sense to be true. And, and that last one is really important because the talent that we need to grow either already lives in Austin or sure wants to move. Uh, and that's been very, very fortunate uh, that you know, we ended up being lucky that that insight ended up being uh, the net reality. Uh, and for those of you that are considering Austin, I cannot tell you how much fun it is to be here. And the part that makes it fun is that we help one another. That That's our kind of general rule of thumb. Everybody's welcome. But if you think you're too important to help 
the young lady or the guy next to you, either from a community or business standpoint, we will very politely drive you back to the airport and put you back on the plane to California. <laughs> You're going to come down, come down, but make sure you know that we help one another because this is still, while it's a big city now, it's still a small town feel. Uh, and mm-hmm. that is what we cannot lose. And we refuse to allow it as the entrepreneurs uh, and the the people that, that live and work in this town, that's what's required. And it's the only thing that's required. We want you to be you in whatever regard that is. We love you for it. But just make sure you know that we're going to ask you to share your experience with someone else. And they're going to do so like uh, likewise. And that's the part that makes Austin amazing. Definitely. And I kind of want to ask on, you know, that transitioned into Austin. I know with uh, the chief doing officers, that you've kind of mentioned that there's uh, four key steps or four elements within the program. And if you wanted to expand on that, and really, I was kind of wondering on, you know, of those four, which one, you know, is something that, you know, you're working hardest on and kind of building up on? And then which one do you think is maybe the most underappreciated in today's culture? Absolutely. Great question. So with CDO, the whole idea is to save time. That like we're sourcing practical doing lessons. And what we wanted to do is source it in four main buckets of information that we've actually color coded inside of the Instagram account. So that, again, if you're not interested in one of them or it's not applicable to your mission, either personally or professionally, you can skip right over it and not invest your time in it. So um, our goal at CDO is to create life well done. Mm-hmm. Like this idea of I'm living my best life is total nonsense. Perfection does not exist. It's literally marketers like me that make that mirage, that make you want to think that my best life is what you should aspire to be. If you look at somebody's camera roll on their iPhone and you look at the three pictures they took before the photo they put on Instagram and the three after, you're seeing actual reality. Right. Somebody's eyes are closed. Somebody's baby is screaming. Somebody photobombed them. Right. You're getting that one moment in time that was literally the the uh, the one second perfect. And it's not reality. And so we didn't want people to try to aspire to something that wasn't actually possible or real. That is a waste of time. And so for us, we want to help people live life well done. And for us, the four categories around well are wellness, education, leadership, and life. Those are the four buckets of content that you'll find on Instagram at Chief Doing Officer. And we've really thought through those four as the balance for whether you're in corporate America or an entrepreneur, right? It's not just all business tactics. Certainly in education and leadership, it's going to be a lot about how you do business and you do business faster and better, Mm -hmm. less failure, and more success moving forward because you're cutting the amount of time to iterate your own trial and error period because you're borrowing somebody else's successful outcome. In wellness and in life, those two are really more built around how do you balance it all? And for me personally, life is really the one um, I have sort of the most passion and heart for. Um, I refer to it as a focus on the proper P. We're not focusing on perfection unobtainable and it's not realistic and it's not out there to be aspired to. I'm focusing on being present, right? So that's really what life's about is how do you be present? So I'm blessed to have three small children 
and I am the softball assistant coach for the six <laughs> under pink diamonds softball team, Lake Travis, Texas. Mm-hmm. And yes, I have a hot pink hat and a hot pink shirt <laughs> and hot pink cleats. And I wear them proudly because my Gracie girl, my youngest uh, child and my only daughter absolutely loves that I do it. When I'm on that softball field tonight at 6 p.m., I'm not going to be on Slack responding to the company's needs. Now, I've let the company know that from 6 to 7.30, I'm unavailable because I'm going to be present on that softball team. The same is also true the other way. As you and I visit, I'm not texting with the head coach talking about tonight's lineup. Right? You have to physically be present, do the task 110%, and then figure out which was the 50% that were successful and which was the 50% that were failures. We refer to them as win or learn. Not win or lose, win or learn. Right? But, but in order what life is really about, in chief doing officer is really trying to crowdsource how to be present when doing life. Uh, Because I think that's really what we should all strive for because perfect A is not possible and B is defined very differently for each individual. And so we want to try to help people learn the lessons of how to do present in each individual step. Definitely. And to, um, I guess, wrap this episode up, I wanted to ask quickly on um, really with chief doing officers and kind of some of the lineups that you have prepared uh, with some of the speakers. I was kind of wondering on, you know, the people you interact with, is there any um, maybe just random habits that you know consistent over successful people? Possibly, you know, are you all kind of morning or night people? You know, do you uh, have um, similar diets? You know, is there something? you know, just random that you might've noticed? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, very good question. Uh, no, there aren't any, there's no silver bullets. Uh, it's not like, wow, they're a morning person. They get up at 4am and that's why they're successful. Or wow, they're a night owl and they work till three o'clock in the morning or my favorite, like, wow, they only sleep two hours a night. Like, or they sleep 20 hours a day, right? Like they, they, that's not what I've found. Um, what I've found is the common trait is curiosity. And what I mean by that is the people that are successful CDFs, right? Chief doing officer. Doesn't mean you need to be a founder. Doesn't mean you need to be a CEO. Anyone can be a chief doing officer. You can be the marketing coordinator in your first job out of college and be a CDO, right? But what makes the common trait is that curiosity to answer the question, why? Why does that exist? Or why does that not exist? And to have the tenacity to actually go do and try your experiment. And the really important thing about the experiment is A, right? You cannot do it 50% of the way. 50% of the way has a 100% failure rate. You either need to be at zero or one tenth. So when you go do an experiment, if I run 20 miles a week, will I achieve my sort of overall health goal. Well, if you don't run 20 20 miles a week, you don't have an experiment to have a good answer. (laughs) Is that a win or a learn, right? Uh, And so it's really about seeing through that 110% of the way for each of your experiments. And then part two is setting the goal line before you start. We as human beings have been trained since birth to literally despise and retract 
as quickly as possible from failure. Think about Little League Baseball, right? If you strike out, everyone's disappointed. You do anything not to strike out. And you're taught that at six years old on a softball field, right? What we like to do is we like to set the goal line. The goal line is 20 miles, right? Mm -hmm. You have an app that tracks your running. You open that app on Sunday and determine, did we succeed to 20 miles or did we fail? And if we only got to 18, we need to be clear with ourselves that that is a learning lesson. We are two miles short and we failed. So what about that didn't allow us to get the last two miles? And how do we apply that learning so we get to the actual goal line, 20 miles the next week? Obviously, I'm giving you a very personal uh, goal. I have to do one 20 miles a week, and I do look at my smartphone app to determine whether I succeeded or learned in terms of failed uh, to get there. Because for me, that's a really important part of me being present and me keeping my own wellness in check between balancing three small children and all the blessings of the fullness of that life and the fastest growing. Uh, tech startup in the alcohol industry. And so um, it's been wonderful to join you and to kind of share our mission growth at Sourcecraft Cocktails, as well as um, a personal passion project that I'm very excited about. Um, again, at the end of May, you'll be able to follow us uh, on Instagram at Chief Doing Officer. Definitely. Definitely. Thank you again, Tim. I'm going to make sure I uh, check out the website with Craft, uh, source craft cocktails and try to order, um, you know, one of the cocktails that you guys offer. And definitely, we'll make sure to check out um, really the offerings on that new Instagram. I can't wait to see some of the interviews that pop up and some of the kind of life lef- life lessons that's you know offered by some of these speakers. But thank you again, Tim, for you know coming on this episode and really you know speaking about your business, speaking about the regulation behind this environment, and then you know. Speaking about the effects of COVID and, you know, with your CDO initiative. Thank you again for having me. I really appreciate it. Definitely. Thank you as well. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Platinum Mask podcast. Stay connected with us directly through the PlatinumMask.com. You can also join the discussion on Instagram at GrayMask12. If you would like to speak with us, please send us an email through maskgrayson at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. This concludes the most thought-provoking portion of your day. Don't forget to like and subscribe to stay fully up to date. Until next time, raise a glass to success, no matter how you define it.